<laughs> Hello, Victoria, and Hello, how are you? Benedict. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine, but I'm not the one who's recently spent the night under canvas. Well, neither have I. Oh, I, I spent... thought you went glamping. Yeah, glamping isn't canvas, though. It was actually a wooden roof. <sighs> well, so you're sort of basically in a wooden house. Don't say I should just say, yeah, yeah, I went camping. I went camping. Because okay. I had to get cold to go to the toilet. I think that's how it classifies. But that's yeah, I thing. went to Cornwall. It was gorge. Was it nice? Mm, it was absolutely lovely. Got a bit of wind burn. You just nipped over into the neighbouring county. Mm-hmm. Lovely. I um, was in the southwest. What have you been doing? I was in the southwest. I was staying at Wells, but that was a long way from you because I. It dawned on me that even when you're down in what you think is the southwest in Zumarazet, you're still miles and miles and miles from Devon and Cornwall. Totally. Ding dong bell. Benny's in the Wells. <laughs> I was the baby eating Bishop of Bath and Wells. <laughs> What's that? From Blackadder. Come on. Oh, I don't know that one. Oh, it's a brilliant. It's one of the best ones. But um, I'd quite like to go to a fancy dress party as Blackadder. <laughs> you should you should go as Bob. Bob. I was just about to say Bob. Bob. Oh, young. So everything's Bob. well with you, is it? It's all good in the hood. And how about all of you at home in your car, wherever you are, as they used to say on community radio? Oh God, you think yeah, you think you're on blooming local radio now, don't you? And how is everybody out there, huh? Victoria Mitzi. What podcasts were made for. Yeah, at 25 minutes past the hour of. Oh, God. <laughs> I do want to know how everyone is. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> nice to see you all again. <laughs> and what have we got? We've got, oh, we've got more Eve. Mr. Eve, the big cheese of crime. Carl Eve. He wants to be known as Carly Crime Reporter, but he did point out in the part two that local reporters do everything, don't they, Ben? You know that. They do. I know that. Right. I, I thought I thought for Carl's first half was really interesting, and I'm really looking forward to his second half. Is this the top half or the bottom half? I don't know. You tell, you tell me which half. You cut it. I think it might be the bottom half. You did all the work. I will not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to oh, um, I've got to put the whistles and bells on. <laughs> so if this podcast doesn't actually come out until sort of like autumn 2022, <laughs> we'll know that you, you kept putting it off and putting it off. Yeah, we've got to win some awards first. So everyone, get your award-winning fingers at the ready. Get those votes in. And oh, rate, review, subscribe and send us emails. You didn't let me finish podcast at gmail.com. Just get involved. Yeah. <laughs> Did I sound is cross? This, is this as pitiful a begging request as you asking people to buy you a coffee? I think I might give up. Buy me some cider. I'm going to change it to buy me a cider. <laughs> buy me booze. Buy me a cider. Strong liquor. Oh, I've been hanging out with pigs. That's nice. That's they no way to talk so about sweet. Phil. <laughs> I think there were more parallels between me and the pigs. That's no way to talk about Carl Eve. <laughs> <laughs> no, I definitely felt an affinity with the little lady piggies. So why were you hanging out with pigs? They were in Cornwall and they were staying next to the place where I was sleeping. And they would greet me in the morning and I would give them leftovers and they'd love me for it. And they're so sweet. They're so ugly. 
They're so New the Zealand, <laughs> New Zealand kind of funny Vietnamese. So the, the piggery was next to the campsite. That must have smelled lovely. They're very clean animals. We were next to some hens on the other side. Who says pigs are clean animals when they wallow around in mud and shit? I think they're just less dirty than some other animals who just sit in their own poo. If they were left, if they were left dirty, that means they don't clean themselves. So I mean, a cat cleans itself. Pigs don't clean themselves. That means, by definition, they're not clean animals. Surely. They seemed all right. I mean... Uh, somebody I, regularly hosed the pigs down. I don't really know why they're known as clean. They don't seem like really stinky, dirty animals. But what I found was that I really could, like, connect with them. Oh, oh God. <laughs> I could. I could have conversations with them and they would grunt back. <laughs> Sounds like this podcast. <laughs> No, well, I only occasionally get a grunt back. <laughs> oink, oink. Talking of buy me a coffee. Uh, here we go, go on. <laughs> Forward slash YDMLF. Buy me some swill. Buy me, buy me <laughs> some piggy pellets. What piggy did they like? Pellets. They liked bananas. I'm not sure piggy pellets are what they eat or what comes out the other end. <laughs> they ate. Right, when, when they say eat like a pig, okay, because I don't know pigs. I don't, I've never really known them. Then I held one, a baby piglet, which was totally cute. And then now I've got to know these two ladies, Rhubarb and Raspberry. And, but their faces, right, they're so ugly. And my daughter was saying, don't judge them for being ugly. It was so sweet. She was like, don't judge them for being ugly. They're beautiful. And then I just grew to love them because they're little faces in the morning. <laughs> Literally like that. And then when they eat... They kind of eat with their mouth wide open. <laughs> that sounds like, just just like you then. It is. And then there was sunbathing. But anyway, that's that's enough of the piggy wiggies. Um, let's let's the actually. Hang on, the, more... sorry. The pigs were sunbathing. Mm. Apparently, topless. a happy happy pig sunbathes. A happy pig is a sunbathing pig. Mm. What well, with shades on? <laughs> yeah. Well, they do get sunburned, so they have to go down the bottom of the mud to the muddy bit. <laughs> To if it gets reading the latest Lee Childs as they lounge on a recliner, <laughs> yeah, with a pina colada, <laughs> <laughs> trying to decide little... whether whether to go in the water or take a ride on a pigolo. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> we didn't talk over each other in what is a wide LMF first. <laughs> oh, by the way, happy birthday, Ben. When is it my birthday? It was our birthday, was it our we birthday? We were two, then oh, wow, we just sailed past it. Yeah. Happy birthday to us. So if we're two, does that mean we're sort of soon going to be losing our teeth? Haven't you lost yours already? <laughs> Only my baby teeth when I was about three or four or whatever whatever age you are when you lose your teeth. No, you're a bit older, aren't you? About five or six. Yep, that's currently going on in my household. <laughs> but mine are going to be lost for like the second time soon. So has the tooth fairy been tiptoeing through the house? Oh! <gasps> There's such. I did have a, a little yank on her first wobbly tooth. Um, <laughs> this is my daughter, not the pig. <laughs> but it didn't. It didn't come out, and I was a bit like, you know, when it crunches when it comes out. I didn't want yeah. that to happen. It didn't. Um, it didn't budge. Actually, the former Mrs. A. What did she used mm. to do when your daughter's teeth would get wobbly? Did she pull them? No, she used to let them come out, and they're. But yeah, it would get to the point where it was so wobbly. Wobbly, she would mm. just 
what you do is you don't sort of pull it out. What you do is you push it. So you push it to one side and then it sort of cracks and comes out because they've got no roots, those little teeth. They've just got oh. like little hollow bits under the bottom. So they're ready to come out. It's just oh. the it's just the skin around the very edge that's holding them in. So you get to the point where they're so well, because what you don't yes. want the child to do is the tooth to actually just fall out in the middle of the night and maybe the child then swallow it. Oh, I see. Because, oh, so, I, I was going to let it fall out of its own accord, but is it better to give it a little push I mean, push to you can let side? it fall out during the day, but as I said, at bedtime, just check how wobbly it is. If it's wobbly enough to come out, then just quickly just push it over. It'll crack out and then... So uh, literally just push it to the side? Yeah, push it to... Which, you know, you, you can wobble it from side to side. Eventually, yeah. you'll sort of feel it eventually yeah. go. Suddenly, you go, Dunk, there you go, you're out. Ooh, how exciting. And, and then there may be a visit from the tooth fairy who will be leaving, what, £10, £15? Stingy tooth fairy. Well, Why as you she... say, she doesn't know the difference. She goes, here, mum, here's a pound, and she'll give me a 1p. She's got no <laughs> idea, so maybe I could get away with giving her 1p. <laughs> or put five 1ps down and say it's an incredibly de- 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 generous <laughs> £5 tooth fairy. What's the, what's the going rate for the tooth fairy these days, anyway? I thought first tooth got more, but I think someone was trying to wind me up. Why so, would the first tooth get more? I mean, surely I the, like the, the, last, the last tooth should get more because that's that's the full set. Oh, you're getting clever about it now. But Well, of course, I'm going to overanalyze it. Don't but, um, no, you don't overanalyze. That's me. Oh, fair enough. That's true, actually. Actually, yeah. It's the... Oh, the way you said that and then drank your <laughs> Chianti. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a Montepulciano and it's very good. Oh, I quite like a nice Montepulciano, full-bodied. It is very full-bodied. <laughs> I'm quite full-bodied. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole different story. But yeah, Mitzvah Porciano. Porciano. <laughs> right. We've got actually, uh, time to put our serious hats on again. We've got a really horrible pedo. So from one really um, horrible pedo, Vanessa George last week, to last bye week, to William Goad, who... Seriously, the level of offending and the twists and turns in Carl Eve's story are coming up in just a moment. And we didn't say I'm Victoria Mitzi. I'm a broadcaster <laughs> and a and a I nearly said paedophile, a podcaster <laughs> <laughs> and so a voiceover amateurish. and an idiot and an amateur. If if, if you, honestly, if you're still listening now, wondering who the <laughs> fuck is talking to you, and I'm Ben Ando, I'm a former BBC News correspondent, an all-round bad egg, and it, you know we're so. Fucking amateurish. We're just not even introducing ourselves until we've been fattling on for about 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Who love the sound of their own punnery (coughs) and coughs. Still got the old COVID then. Yeah, I've just had a cough for ages. It's not COVID. I'm negative, but it's boring. You are negative. Um, No, no one, honestly, no one, no one, no one is interested in other people's illnesses. I am, if it means I can talk about my own. Exactly, that's right. And no one is interested in yours. The only reason you're interested is because you want to talk about your own, which nobody cares about. The only people who care are like really nice, good people who work in hospitals and stuff. But the rest of us don't give a shit. I was was talking to a guy recently who started telling me about his friend having a stroke. And I said, I'm going to stop you there because I'm not interested. I'm sorry he's had a stroke, but I don't care how he had it or the circumstances. It doesn't matter to me. I'm only I'm only not talking because I've got a mouthful of cider. War. <laughs> but William Goad oh, was William a British God. millionaire businessman from Plymouth in Devon, your manor, who was imprisoned for life for child rape. And many of them. Um, he was described mm. as Britain's most prolific paedophile. 
his assaults caused two of his victims to commit suicide. Now, I know there are no nice pedos, but this is a particularly vile and horrid and disgusting pedo. He pleaded guilty to two charges of indecent assault and 14 counts of rape. He was described in court as a voracious, calculating, predatory and violent homosexual paedophile who sexually abused young boys over a 30-year period. For three decades, he got away with abusing young boys. He was sent to prison for life in October 2004, and he died in prison on the Isle of Wight in 2012, aged 67 or 68. And again, something that we sadly hear time and time again, he preyed on the vulnerable young men with problems, boys with problems, and he use that to his in in inverted commas advantage because he would you know he'd say you know I'm a millionaire businessman who do you believe when they brought him in for questioning just really slimy really manipulative full of quite a lot of charisma which obviously made him a lot of money but that the careful picking of his victims allowed you know, him to go on and on mm. he he his youngest victims were 8 years old um, and his fortune was estimated to be around twenty-five million pounds. And do you know how he made his fortune? Go on. In nineteen ninety-one, he opened Cornish Market World, which at one point was Britain's oh, yeah. biggest indoor market and had more than three hundred stalls. And in the mid nineteen nineties, he um, opened another money spinner. Ben's Play World, a children's play zone hosting a range of activities aimed at two to 12 year olds, including mega slides, giant tubes, and it says here, a massive ball pond. Which, and he used to frequent it and sit there. But do you know what really got me? Of course, that that gets me. But what, what really pulled at my heartstrings was that a lot of these boys had never been shown any kindness. And all of a sudden, this old bastard comes and shows them, you know, tenderness and they mistake that for actual kindness that they've never experienced before. And then he totally takes advantage of that. What an old cunt. Mm, absolutely. He created and, and, Mount Gould Camping Club as well. And and that is what um, Carl is going to talk about uh, to us. And we also talk about quite a few other things which you'll hear in in I found it fascinating it was a lot to do with journalism it's a lot to do with BBC actually and and his point of view that the BBC has the luxury of being able to portray things and he talks about court reporting being lost and how he thinks the BBC is has the luxury of being funded in the way that he does it does and he has to as a online predominantly online reporter um, have to account for his clicks Whereas the BBC doesn't work that way. No, that's interesting. So, mm. uh, well, I mean, I, sp I suppose, you know, um, any newspaper in the old days would have needed to gather um, readers and readership. So I suppose clicks equal readers. Yeah. And, you know, what what is the news that people want? Is it, you know, click fodder or is it um, what the BBC deems to be news, which... Carl certainly wasn't that impressed with and was a little bit, you know, inclined to, more inclined towards the commercial news outlets. So I, I found that quite interesting. And certainly a lot of you listening are really interested in media. So let us know what you think, as usual. You didn't let me finish 
podcast at gmail.com. Here we go. Crime reporter, Carl Eve. And that's, I guess, when I look back, you know, 25 years of reporting, and I still think I'm kind of new to it, in all honesty. I look you're not sharky the... enough. I thought you'd be a bit more sharky than you are. Sharky? Yeah, you know, sort of sharp elbow seeming. What is it? I'm not sure. Do you know what I mean? Because reporters are usually quite, journalists are usually quite odd. Oh, that's nice. Aren't they? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think think journalists are just like any other industry. You get nice people and not nice Mm. people. Really intense and really keen. And, you know, they'll do anything, include sell the grandmother. And others who find different ways of doing it. I've I've met all sorts over the years in, in, Mm. in journalism as well as, as well as, you know, crime. I've met criminals who actually quite seem nice, like nice people. They're not, but at first they seem quite nice. Give them the right environment, yeah. Mm. Oh, definitely. Mm. What I'd like to say is thank you so much for joining us on You Didn't Let Me Finish podcast because we've been looking forward to meeting you. Really? Yes! And I should say who who I'm talking to, just in case we forget to intro this clip, is Carl Eve, who is crime reporter that's what you wanted to be referred to as. I what, yeah, I kind of do everything because local reporters do everything. But I am a, I am predominantly crime reporter. It's kind of um, a niche I carved out for myself quite some time ago and then, you know, viciously held on to it. We started working from home two years ago and you start off with that. You get up, you go to work, you do your work, finish around about sort of six, seven, eight, depending on what shift you're on. And then you come home, which is quite straightforward. Crime happens 24-7. So there's many a time I get a call sort of 8, 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night. But now that we're working from home, you kind of, you don't have that commute. So you end up spending your commute yes. time in front of this. Yes. And then when you finish at sort of five-ish, oh, there's just one more story to be done. Oh, this has just come in on the email. Oh, just one more story to be done. Next thing you know, it's 10 or 11 o'clock. 24 hours a day crime line for you. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I get to the point where now after the last few years, I turn my, I don't turn it off at night, but I turn all the sound off at night because otherwise... I will get phone calls at two in the morning. Yeah. My partner's not happy about, understandably. No, no. And you shouldn't be happy about that either. Um, although, if it's a good story, you will be. <laughs> it's always because yeah, there's something going to drop. I was going to say, one of the cases I um, we're going to look at... Mm. It, Interesting, you know, the... the there's somebody from the Times. Demonstration of taking the, you know, you're the eyes and ears, you know, and you're no longer the ears anymore and actually I've got to say to you as uh, you know as reporting at the BBC when I've suggested and and begged to go to court they haven't let me no it's because it's not visual and I think that I I used to work at the BBC a long time ago uh, in London and everything is about the visuals because it's tv and so there was the visuals in court well there isn't any you're not we're not even allowed to take the camera in thing is being radio it was very interesting because the pictures do work yeah, perfectly. They work so, in a that, in a middle ground between. Uh, if you're a good journalist, you, know, you can paint those pictures. Oh yeah, it's powerful. You listen to something like um, from our own correspondent on Radio Four. Mm. It's just gold the way mm. these journalists are allowed to mm. just describe what they want the way they want because it's being you know this is their opinion moment. This is the bit. This is the only bit they're allowed to have a, a, a non big one. A BBC approved opinion. And so the, the the writing there 
you know, Fergal Keane's description of uh, when he was in um, Rwanda and things like that. It's absolutely stunning. And as you say, it paints a fantastic picture. Mm-hmm. And radio, radio could, I mean, I think that's where podcasts take over now. And that's why pod, crime podcasts have become so successful. I think because you can paint that picture and you don't need the the screens mm. most of the time if you're doing it when you see screen um when you see sort of tv crime coverage 99 times out of 100 it's interviews with a, a t- load of talking heads mm. and then a couple of scene setters in slow-mo because mm. you can't show anything mm. and i think that's the problem with, BB, with with news itv news bbc news whoever it is when it comes to court reporting all you really ever get of a court report is a talking head standing outside mm. going and today in court this happened and you'll get somebody walking out the steps and somebody walking in the steps if you're lucky you get a few cutaway um, gvs uh, of the location where the crime happened and that's it and so if you're a news editor and you're going okay we've got um we've got a big steam engine show in the middle of devon there'll be loads of steam engines and there'll be like little kids crambling over it'll be really exciting this thing or we've got this court case it's a no-brainer for, for the news editors at the, at the tv station they'll say mm, steam engines and you mentioned it yourself it's click fodder really yeah and i it does i mean i know we're getting going off the this the, the this scene of it I do sometimes wonder for me and I said I speak as somebody who worked at the BBC so I have a great love of it I do sometimes look at the BBC and think you don't have to abide by the same click rules that I do in uh, private business I mean I don't don't write for private business I write kind of for me somebody once said you know who do you write for who are your audience and I I was at this um, meeting where it was all about journalism and stuff and I went I know it sounds really awful. I don't write for anybody except myself. That's kind of how I say it. I, what do I think is really interesting? What do I think is really important? I'll write about that. Now, there's some things I write and it's like a kind of, it needs to be written because the public might want to know about it. But in the main, at my heart, I like to write for myself. But the, the BBC have that kind of luxury that they don't have to even really worry about what the public want because they're funded differently. They can go, you know what, we're not going to do any of that. We're going to do this. But what are the numbers mm-hmm. saying? And that's the thing. What do the numbers say? It's always about what are the numbers say. But the BBC I, doesn't really have to account for numbers. Yeah. And I think it's, I kind of do wonder sometimes when I look at the news sense, God, if anyone, if any of the management of the BBC listen to this, they'll be shouting at the screen at me. Who don't understand? There's but some great crime down here. Yeah, I look at the I look at their news sense sometimes, and I go, "What are you doing?" You're exactly right. It's the steam engine. News editor, I wouldn't be choosing that. I would no. I'd be choosing this. That story is corking, and I, it's when you see the same kinds of stories. And I, I must say, the last few years, I've been quite impressed at ITV. Their news sense has been very, I think, much more. I don't say old school, but they're very, they're very sort of in tune with this is good news. This is interesting news. This is vital. Mm, mm. Not, As opposed not, to what we think good news is for you. Yeah. And so, so it's, but it's a <laughs> criticism. I'm sure somebody looks at my news. I mean, people look at our website and go, cool, cool this news. It's like, well, Do people say to you that you can very much hear your voice through your writing? Me? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes I thought it was quite interesting the way when I was reading what you were writing, I, you I wanted to 
I had to one or two um but (laughs) no um it was an incentive as well I was I was just thinking I'm interested to meet this person to see if they sound like how they write because you could hear your voice in your writing Mm, my mum used to say that really yeah I mean she didn't I would send some stuff to her but I kind of like because obviously it's crime all the time mum read about this sexual abuse brilliant but she would make she would make comment and hear your voice in that article card and I'm like I'm not sure if that's a compliment or something else (laughs) I I think it's somebody asked you how do you write how do you do especially when you do an opinion piece I don't do opinion pieces very often but when I do it's kind of like I'll only I'll do it if I think there's some really good reasons really good passion reason and I try my best just to write straight from the information I've got and then occasionally with a story I'll add in an opinion piece on it so like the Vanessa George case for me it, it I wrote an opinion piece which I'd written not long after it happened and then I kept it for a whole year until the case was over which was the piece about how devastating it was to watch this guy get carried out of the courtroom in tears to just the fact that the, the pain that he felt and and some of the other dads I spoke to and the parents that that was where the, the pain and the agony really was that it's going to, that what Vanessa George did, she didn't do to the children, she did to the parents, and it's going to stick with them for the rest of their lives. It's going to stick with the grandparents. And I spoke to one dad who's like a couple of years later, and it's like it, it killed the nan and granddad, absolutely killed them. Because for them, their little bit of precious joy had been abused as far as they're concerned, and they couldn't get over it. And you're like, always playing it through in your head when you're dealing with the children. And so when I wrote the piece, it was like, I, that's what I wanted to get through to people. It was like, what Vanessa Jules did, uh, I, I want to give you this one moment in time that encapsulates the whole story. And often I do find, I was thinking about this with the other um, stories you wanted to talk about, every case always seems to have, or I find there's always a one line or a one moment in it which kind of gets the, I want to say the horror, but it encapsulates the whole case in just that one line. It's the iceberg that says everything else about that case. So um, the other case, the Danielle Jones case, which was the missing girl from Essex. Um, there's, there was a line that the mum said, and it, and it still sticks with me now, years later. Now that's going back. 20 years 21 years um and it's just and in each case there's this moment of of you know agony this this one line or this one moment in the incident that makes you just go oh blimey. And you see the ripple effects from you get the whole story encapsulated in that one line we, the spoke, to, we spoke to colin sutton who was dealing with uh, actually it was him who uh, nailed levi belfield well, first time around, but he was telling us about the the court case for Amelie de Lagrange, I think it was. But in one of those elements, you know, the, the parents had been living hell yeah. about her murder. And Levi Belfield pipes up when things aren't going his way in court. And he was he spoke in his own defense as well, mm. which was a mistake, I think. He said this is my life we're talking about here. You know, this man who's been creeping up on schoolgirls. The arrogance and, of it, isn't yeah. it? 
And that was what it was for Colin Sutton, who is also, you know, in his position as leading those investigations, he had to keep cool cucumber. But even he had that sort of heart-wrenching moment that, you know, this man who, when he first met him, you know, he was like, F off you, C. You know, that Mm. was his greeting to the man who was to play this large role in his future, (laughs) you know. And he, who was got by that line. Mm. For him, that that kind of shows the absolute arrogance and entitlement of of a criminal. It's like, this is about me. No, it's not about you. It's about what you've done. They can't see that. What what have I done? And again, it's the psychology of that person, the person who's able to go out and keep doing that. And and when when they're attacked back, or attacked back as they see it, it's like, yeah, but this is my life. Mate, shove your life up your backside. Mm. The way that it's gone is quite interesting because Ben and I often talk about the repercussions of cases. And that's what we're able to do, as you say, with podcasts. You mentioned that line with Danielle Jones. Mm. Because we've Please. gone we've gone backwards really and what how I wanted yeah. to do it because I wanted to talk to you about your experience and mm. you know how you came to court reporting. So in a way we'll just continue with the crimes if that's okay. Because yeah. I, I'm hoping to sort of get that in reverse now through what you're saying. How I got into I mean I got into reporting late and I'm a latecomer by comparison to a lot of my colleagues. I, I was nearly 30 before I became a journalist. Most of the people I work with are 20s, early 20s. So I w- I'd already done a load of other things. I'd always wanted to be a journalist since I was young, but I came from a very working class kind of background and nobody even did A-levels, let alone go on to do a degree. And so you know, out to work at 16, get on, go and get the work, get the pay. And where was that? My first job, my first job was at the Bank of England, data entry. So I can, I can get- We've all done it. <laughs> I've done data entry. I can do all this. Somebody said to me, give it a 15 digit number. I don't even have to look at the keypad. Yeah, 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 I know. <laughs> data entry all day long for about three or four years and it was um and all the time i was there i was thinking i want to be a journalist i want to be a journalist i want to write i want to write mm. and it was only when my last year at the, at the bank of england i ended up being the assistant to the editor of the old lady magazine which is like an in-house magazine it's very very respectful it's been around for 200 years but it had, it had the editor of it was quite it was only him and me and I had a great view of the, I had an office that overlooked Royal Exchange and I was allowed to write stuff. I started to write stuff. So instead of writing for fanzines about comics or stuff like that, I was writing for, for this thing, this publication. And we were doing interviews and things like that. And that really made me go, I could do this. I could do this. And eventually I sort of saved up money, went back to, went to uni. I'd done, I've been doing A-levels in the evening just to prove that I could. And then um, I went traveling when I came back. There was a there was a course, an NCTJ course, just down the road from where I lived. And it was like, it was cheap. I could afford it. I could get there and do it. Oh, like, my goodness, really? <laughs> that yeah. what cha- that's what changed between the time that you did it and the time I, I did I it. I could do this. So I got onto this course and I did really, really well. Did you? I was, doing, I, was re- I got work experience. Were you the SWAT, Carl? I'm doing a SWAT. I was just really passionate for it. Yeah. Maybe I wasn't sure. Whilst, <laughs> I, was, whilst I, was, I was at college, I was writing for the local um, the college newspaper. And I was uh, sending stuff back to people who I'd, who I'd I'd worked very briefly for about a year in the newspaper, in the library. 
uh, my old my old newspaper and I've been the, the librarian so you're doing all the cuttings oh nice the, paper, the sheets of oh, paper lovely. I like the names all day and you're helping all the journalists out and I'm thinking yeah this is definitely what I want to do the rest of my life but you know you've got to have a degree and you've, you've got to do a journalism course so I was like right that's what I'm going to do and whilst I was there they said would you like to do a column so I was like yeah what a weekly column I paid my way through college effectively because I was getting 25 quid a column per week that, oh, that also changed. I was doing like free spots on radio mm. <laughs> during well, my, I did um, the broadcast version. Yeah. Well, this is the early nineties. So it was, it was a long time. Thank ago. goodness you got paid. I did. But I said it paid my way through college. That was, yeah. that was, that was my beer, my, my rent. So when I finally got into it, I did one, one week's work experience. And in that week, I got two front pages. What? I know. <laughs> so one was goodness. a half one of it was um, a half-page photo. A bus had gone underneath um, South End Pier. They've got a bridge over South End. How South End Pier has got this bridge that goes over the road, and then it goes into the pier. And a double-decker bus had gone underneath it and obviously missed all the signs, and it just ripped it open like a sardine can. Oh. And I'd run down from our office with a film camera. It was still using a film camera. I begged it down there, and there's this... Um, a female journalist, I don't know her name, but she was right, right behind me and she was going to do the interview and I was going to get the photos and interview a couple of And I got this great photo from above of this fireman standing in the middle of this um, this upstairs bus. And it, by this point, it was an open top bus, half jutting out of the, and he was looking up at me and I got this photo. And then I interviewed a couple of people and it went on the next day's front page. And, and the editor was like, when you finish your course, give me a call. Mm. That's how I got into it. So, yeah, I, it's, I, I hate to say this, but a lot of it is luck, isn't mm. it? What oh, happens yeah. at the time? Because uh, I think I covered um, whether people wanted a new Tesco's to be built uh, somewhere around Victoria. So it was a few Vox Pops and that was the end of my career in print. <laughs> <laughs> Hammersmith and Fulham Chronicle. <laughs> There's a line I said when I've said, oh, I just got lucky. And I've had news editors go, make your own luck. You mm, make your yeah. Own. Yeah, you ran it, down there. But it's because I pegged it with the camera. I'm taking the camera. I'm going and just mm. took the photos. And then I went through, you know, I wasn't, the barrier hadn't even gone up at that point. It was only, the barrier only went up once I'd taken my photos. So I got the photo. Mm. And, I got, and I got an interview with someone who'd seen it happen. But well, that's what's interesting about when people say, oh, are you going to write, you know, what do you do for a living? You know, mm. oh, are you going to like snoop? Are you going to? But actually the reality of it is so different, you know, sitting in trees waiting for things to pop out. We're, <laughs> we're so badly represented in, in the in the sort of media, I say the media, I mean, the media as in stories. I mean, it's like sometimes you watch a TV programme and it's like, oh, a journalist is about to appear. Park Kent. Oh look, let's let's watch what. Oh, is he is he unshaven? Yeah, is he really a horrible dirtbag? Yeah, <laughs> is he, is he going to write salacious? Does he look all hunched over and he's been sleeping in his clothes and they probably smell of wee and alcohol? Yeah, is he the sort of person who's going to sell his mum? But yeah, yeah. That describes most of my friends. Oh, gosh, so. I'm <laughs> but they they always do that. The only program I ever watched, where I thought, oh my god, they've absolutely nailed it. Was um, yeah. State of Play. Oh, I don't know it. State of Play, the series. <gasps> best, okay. best version. Where can of, I find it? You probably find it on BritBox. It was on BBC. It stars John Sim 
as the journalist. There was a whole bunch of journalists, but all of the guys, everyone from it have gone on to be massive. But, oh. um, it's the best, I think, version of how politics, crime, and journalists or police and journalists all interact or don't interact. It's devastating. It was turned into a film with Russell Crowe, but that was rubbish by comparison. But the TV series was just like... Sadly, it is W1A for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's BBC, so yeah, it would be. (laughs) Um, So yeah, just sorry to go to to Daniel Jones, because I I was wondering if we can do that, because I've got some hungry, hungry customers. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> but um, I'm, and also, I'm, I'm wondering if it's okay with you if you can just um, mention what we were going to discuss because we really won't have the time to talk about William Goad. Okay. Will That's we? Right. Yeah. Give you, th- give you a thumbnail sketch of him, really, because in many ways it was the after effects of William Goad. Um, okay. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't there when Goad was done. What I, what I was involved in was the fallout a few years later, or endless fallout of William Goad. Can you just give us a sort of brief outline on him and the crimes? William Goad, um, he was a small-time businessman in Plymouth in the 60s, wheeler-dealer, and he made his money sort of uh, selling goods almost out on the street. And bit by bit, he built up his business and he got these shops and got more shops and then he was involved in building a sort of uh, a marketplace in Cornwall where you could people could go there were lots of different markets there and and then he was involved in um, the building of a play area for children uh, which was passed by the local council despite the fact that in the background during all this time he was being arrested and charged and convicted of sexually abusing children yes I noticed that yeah, in the reading, I, I'd not heard of this before. I've got to say, no, and it's it, you kind of sit back now. Panorama did an absolutely fantastic expose. This is before I came to Plymouth, and it kind of shows you the way Plymouth is an isolated town. Is that I hadn't heard of any of this until I arrived, and when I arrived, it was like, how is this not the biggest story in the country? This is this this is phenomenally enormous. You know, Panorama did a really good story. This was after he was caught, after he was done there was um, and, and convicted of this big series of cases. And so really, I think they only got him for a hundredth of what he really had done. The numbers were horrific already the numbers were, before that. The numbers are off the scale. And when people say to me, oh yeah, Jimmy Savile, it's like, this guy makes Jimmy Savile look like an amateur. He was phenomenal. Um, five years after he was jailed, I was talking to one of the, the detectives who was now sort of back in uniform as a sergeant. And uh, I took you know, five years on from him being jailed. And it was like, oh yeah, I'm still getting phone calls every week from victims. What, for the last five years? Yeah, pretty much every week for the last five years. Sometimes they'll go a few weeks with nothing, but we'll get a phone call from a solicitor saying somebody else wants to get a crime reference number. And a lot of it was a case of they wanted to, they knew he'd been jailed, but they wanted to spill, they wanted they wanted help. Was that as a result of some specific press coverage as well? No, some of it was just it was um, just ticking over in the background. Well, this is after it got done, and this is as if this is before I arrived. So I'd written one story, which was you know five years later, and it's like, yeah, I'm still getting focused. I'm like, that's hundreds. She goes, yeah, that's hundreds. And it shows you how it works with the victims. 
Yeah, they were still got, but of course, by this point, it had all been shut off. Now, what we had had, this is where, where I came into it. We'd got this one guy, one lad, lad, who kept sort of turning up, had, had been turning up at our newspaper for a while, saying there's other people involved. There was other people involved. This wasn't, he wasn't working alone. There was other, and I think, you know, the police didn't do a full e inquiry. Now, the police um, initially had kind of, what we learned was he said this is this is what you're going to investigate and that's it and then there was um, more pushing by victims and they investigated a couple of other people and they did commit when i arrived just as they were doing this guy called norsworthy and the point was that during the norsworthy trial um you weren't allowed to say the name goad you weren't allowed to print it so every time they talked about you know norsworthy met with this man in the courtroom, even the jury weren't allowed to be told the name of this man. It was only when Norsworthy was found guilty of sexually abusing a whole load of young men, boys, that they were able to say, Mr. B, who we've not been able to mention, is Goad. Which, of course, everyone in the room goes, Jesus, Goad, yeah, we all know him. Worst sexual abuse there is. So I'd learned from the previous crime reporter that this guy was, you know, turning up and he's the one who helped saw Norsworthy convicted. But he was like, there are still others out there. There are still others out there who are all part of this gigantic circle. They all knew each other. They all knew what they were doing. They were sharing boys left, right and centre. And it was only when this guy turned up at, uh, you know, the ship in Plymouth, the big glass ship. Now, that was our office. Oh, up in, oh my God. I'm, I'm quite new here. Oh, right. Well, West, Western well, Morning News the Herald here, had its own specially made um, but it was owned by the Daily Mail Trust. They had their own specially made newsroom industry business. Amazing. Work. And it was designed by this guy who was like state of the art. And it was built like a gigantic glass ship. That's That reminds me of the Ark in West London. It is very they much did like that. that which is now oh, empty, yeah. I think. Well, no, this one's full. Now, this is, since we've left it, it's uh, they got rid of the, they sold off the print works, which was a shame. But it was a fantastic setup. I mean, it's still there now. You can go and see it. Brilliant okay. place to work. Yeah. Only because it looked amazing. But he, this, this guy turned up, but he turned up this time for the first time with a detective, retired detective or retired through ill health, who had been the other detective on the case. And she was like, I'm going to back him. Everything he says is true. There are all these other men who sexually abuse boys. And we were told not to investigate it, to keep it to just a goad, not go any further. And I'm like, you're going to go on the record and say that? She was like, yeah, happy to. Jesus. Just, police refuse to investigate a load of sexual abusers. That's enormous. Um, and she's like, yeah, I'll, I'll show you the paperwork. Why did they refuse? Well, she, it turns out that when the panorama had been done a few years beforehand, which is, you know, we've got a, and the panorama was fantastic. The panorama sort of exposed that there were these other people and a couple of them were picked up. One of them, the panorama team went to interview in France later, did himself in because yes, he knew what right. was coming um, or not. So the, the guy who had come to us had said, look, you know, they, we don't know why they didn't want to make it go further. And there's a, still a lot of dirty laundry. So the, um, one of the victims said on the Panorama show, he, he, he was shown the paperwork from when he was in uh, in social care. Um, 
where they have in black and white written, yep, boy has come to be picked up by William Goad, known paedophile, taken away for the day, signed off, off you go. And so he was there on camera saying, you know, they let me go with this abuser, whereupon I was sexually abused repeatedly. And they were all, to different extents, hugely damaged. And this is what really stuck in the crawl of the detective. And after years of it not going much further, she wanted it out there. Um, and so between the two of them, they sort of gave me the whole, you know, they didn't do this, they didn't do this, they didn't do this, they didn't do this. And what and then came of that then? Well, he made a complaint, and whilst whilst we were writing the story, because nature of nature of the job, I ended up writing most of my material in my own time at home in the evening after I put the kids to bed. Oh God! Because sitting Seriously. in the room, going, I'm going to be writing six or seven hours on this one thing. Oh. No, you're not. We've got all these other jobs for you to do. Yeah. So most of the work I actually did in my own time. But um, I remember sort of going. I remember going off to this detective's place at home, and she was like, "Right, here's a box." And as I'm going through the box and every, literally every page I'm going, I can't believe this. It was just every page was a revelation. And um, I'm getting phone calls constantly from my boss saying, my news editor, can you get back to the office? We've got some stories for you to do. Yeah. It's like, seriously, I'm, no, no, we, you know, we've been gone an hour. So like, yeah. shut up. I'm yeah. reading through five or six years worth of sexual abuse cases. And it's stressful enough without even having that. Yeah. backdrop yeah Thanks a lot. But, um, but I ended up I think because I was naive to the processes about what you can and can't do I just did stuff that I just thought well this is right so I contacted the judge of the case who sentenced Goad several years beforehand and I, I got he was um he was le he'd left by him. he was no longer a judge but he was uh, a lecturer a law lecturer at the university in Plymouth and so I got hold of people and I said look I want to interview you about this case I've got the detective saying there are other men out there and police need to investigate it. I've got one of the victims and a couple of others who have put in a complaint to the police saying, you didn't investigate it. You have failed in your business. I said, I, I want to get a line from you. So he asked me to come in and we did an interview. He had, um, he had an ex-chief superintendent next to him to sort of make sure everything he said was legal. But he said, look, there's something I can't say. But what I can say is it... I think it was it, it goes against common sense to think that William Goad acted alone. And I'm like, that's the line for me. So I built up all these separate stories, um, interview with the detective about all the things that she knew were miss, was missed out into the stuff about Goad's past, which hadn't been revealed beforehand because journalists have never had access to some of the material. Interviews with two or three victims who described about you know the other men they were shared with, who they had told when they were young men and older men that, that they'd been abused by and the police had never investigated it. And then eventually investigation with the police, you know, saying we're, we're going to take this complaint seriously, we're going to do it. Um, there was one part of the story which I was never allowed to run and since then when I've tried to run it again um, it's fair to say that there are, I have to be careful how I phrase this, mm. there are certain lawyers who have ensured that we don't write anything about it. So it's frustrating. So the, but I think there's so much of that story that is not out there. And I think I described it to someone as it's the worst stain over Plymouth. That this guy abused so many young men, so many. Um, who ne were never given any kind of sense of justice for themselves. They've never been given any kind of support 
at all. I met a, I had a, after I did a few of these stories, I was phoned up by a guy who wanted to speak to me about the abuse he suffered. And I went around his house, um, and he was in his 50s, early 50s. And it was like, and he started telling me bits. And he's like, I've never told my wife about it, never told my children about it. Um, but it was affecting him more and more, and he was starting to eat away at him because I've always been good with my kids, got a loving relationship, but I'm now sleeping in a separate room because room I'm waking up screaming. And, and, I, and I was like, have you ever spoken to anybody in you know, for therapy, support like that? He's like, no. And I'm like, I can't be the first person you tell. I said, it would be great for me as a story, but really, it's morally not right that you now offload all of this that was done to you. And he hadn't told me very much at this point. I was like, you absolutely need to go to your doctor first. You need to seek um, some sort of support and therapy. And then I will speak to you. Because to be honest, if I speak to you now and you tell me all this stuff that I know you're about to tell me, I then walk out the door and you're left with it. And he was like, okay. He never came back to me. But I remember thinking, that's just one guy. There must be so many others. And as I said, going back to when this this uh, super sergeant said, oh, "I'm getting, we're getting a phone call a week still, five years later, of, of people saying, I was sexually abused by him. I was sexually abused by him. Um, and I've never told the police or I've never told anyone. And I want to make a complaint now. So what and went I, so wrong? There was, I think there was a number of things that went wrong. At the time, social services, like a lot of social services, I think of that era in the sort of 70s and 80s, just did not have a grip of this. Um, that's the first part. The second part, as was explained to me by one of the detectives, is a, by the time they were able to say, I was sexually abused by this man, these men were already young men. Because he... he in definitive terms, he was not a paedophile, he was a hebophile. He was always into boys, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Um, and by this time, these men were able to say to each other and to others, I was sexually abused by that man. And it was a long-term grooming process. They were in their 20s, early 20s, mid-20s. By which point, they were nightmares. Um, and as this detective who said he got phoned every week, he goes, you know, when he was tasked with this other detective to go around and start interviewing the victims, and it was like one name would lead them to another name. And it's like that that person would say, yeah, I was in the room when so-and-so and so-and-so was sexually abused. Right, let's go and talk to those two. Okay, I was in the room. Oh, I was here. He sexually abused me. And I knew he shared me with this other boy, this other man. And I saw this. And one boy led to another boy. And and the female detective Shirley said, you know, I could have spent the rest of my career just going from one to another who would have led me to another who would have led me to another. These guys by this point were nightmares. And this this detective I spoke to who was these all the people I was meeting, Carl, they were all the people I used to roll around in the gutter with at um, Union Street fighting after the pub. These are the guys who I were at to go to these calls of them. ODing. These were the guys who I was going to the houses where they were involved in domestic violence and violence on the street and drug addiction and alcohol addiction. All of them. These were all damaged men. And I think it's because they were all damaged people. They weren't taken seriously. It relates to other cases I've seen where um, children in care homes. Children in care homes, great place to target if you're an abuser. Mm. 
Because mm. who's going to believe them? You have absolute power over them. And most of the kids who are in care homes are perceived as damaged, mm. almost lesser. And so when all a whole load of them go, so-and-so, who's respected, and the magistrate has been sexually abusing me. <laughs> yeah, right, mate. And yet, years later in court, it all comes out, oh, my God, that was true. Nobody listened, nobody believed. Mm. I think we went through that long era of don't believe children. Certainly don't believe young men who are drug addicts. God's sakes, they're drug addicts. Mm. Goad himself, when he was arrested, uh, one of the first things he said is... Um, you know, oh, what's this accusation? Well, you're sexually abusing boys. <laughs> Who are you going to believe? Some little drug addict pimp, um, you know, some sort of gay drug. And he would really, it would, they would be demeaned, mm. you know, that they, these druggies. They were boys after money. They were, it was all horrible. And so, of course, you were in an era where police officers were like, okay, who do we believe? Do we believe this fine upstanding businessman? Or do we believe the drug addict, Scro, who's been kicking off in Union Street and and beating his wife and I think that all of that developed into these guys got themselves into positions of power untouchable nobody would believe nobody would believe this great man over this scumbag and, and this um, really played out it's ringing bells of it many rings others. bells and bells and bells so many yeah. cases so many cases are like this it's almost so easy to pinpoint you can't believe they got away with it yeah there is an addition with that one. There was a guy, I can't remember his name, a detective, who a couple of the men I spoke to would reference this detective who knew more than he should, who sometimes was put in charge of the of investigations, previous investigations that went nowhere, suggestions that he was rather well healed for his position. Um, I spoke to one officer from another entirely different department who said when I first started off, in the robbery squad um, and, and the sort of housebreaking squad, which they had then, he had gone to this. He had gone to this raid at Norsworthy, one of Goad's um, compatriots, as it were. And this Norsworthy had gone up to him and said, "Are you the um, are you the OIC on this case? Your name's on the paperwork." So, yeah, I need you to speak to somebody in the, the robbery team. And you realise that there was a lot of, you know, I'll tell you about this if you ignore that. Okay. And there's a, we, you started Politics. To, this was from another detective. This was a detective who said to me, oh yeah, back when I was fresh faced, I was like, no, you're not talking, I'm not talking to the sergeant of, a, of another team. He was fresh faced. So he kind of thought, you know, what, you're going to get off of this by getting me to talk to somebody in the robbery squad. You know, what deal have you got with the robbery squad? Yeah. So you start. I started to piece together and realise, and as some of the young, some of the lads pointed out, there was. I don't want to say call it corruption, but that's really what it was. Mm. There was an element of corruption in it, and even the two detectives who were tasked with getting Goad, had said, look, he'd been investigated, and investigated, and investigated, and he kept getting away with stuff, and we could see all these stalled investigations, and they, one of them said. We had what was then a, a sort of chief superintendent or a superintendent said, you're going to come up against brick walls in this case, but mm. keep going. And so there was mm. that all in that arena. And this this guy who left as a chief superintendent, I phoned him up saying, I want to interview you as part of these investigations I'm doing. I want to talk to you about the GOAD case. I want to talk to you about what you said to these people and what you really meant. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I'll talk to you. And then later on, he was like, no, I'm not going to talk to you. 
And it always made me think there is much, much more behind this case. There are people who knew things who just looked the other way. And as I said, there is a probation report we found written by a probationer after, you know, kind of in the middle of all this, which listed all his previous. And his previous, Goat's previous, went back a long way before he was finally done. And he'd gone through the system. He'd been um, done for sexually abusing boys. Uh, and he, he'd done all these interviews with probation. And it was clear he had a sexual interest in boys. Um, and then after that, he applied to have a children's playground in Cornwall built. And it was approved. And you kind of, and people would say, oh, yeah, he would just turn up at the playground and just watch the kids in these play areas play. And you think probation knew his history. It, it was in, it's handwritten, it's there, it's in black and white. Police knew his history. Magistrates knew his history. And yet when he made an application to build an enormous play park for kids, it got signed off. And every time I've tried, belief. it does, it absolutely, you kind of think, where's the due diligence? Why didn't anyone, why did no one, and even if it's a case of the councillors, well, how would the councillors necessarily know? You kind of think, you look at probation and you look at the police, and you look at the magistrates and the judges and all the people involved in the criminal justice system who encountered Goad and dealt with him, didn't go, he's doing what in Cornwall? No, no, we're gonna go and stop that. Ring, ring, hello, council. No, no, you are not going to approve this guy's building a children's play park. Nobody did that. Somehow and, and it's that... reminding me of Peter Sutcliffe. Because yeah. that was so obvious and so many... So many examples of mistakes that he's made. Yeah. And, and it was almost trying to cover up the mistakes that was causing yeah. him to be able to get... And he was laughing. Yeah. And Goad, Goad we found out even after Goad was in prison, he's you know, dead now, fortunately. But even when he was in prison, we found a report afterwards, again, that we got access to. Somebody sent it to us. It was one of those classic brown envelopes turned up at our office. And inside was a sheet of paper that was a report from prison on Goad talking about, in interview, what he was going to do when he gets out. And he believed he was going to be out in five years. He believed he was going to be out in five years. He was going to get all his money back and he was going to go and live abroad. I bet he was. And it was like it, within a very short space of time. And he reading the report that there, there is nothing in it that makes him go, yeah, I'm sorry for what I've done. It was really just sorry I was caught. Yeah. Let's hear my future plans. Oh, yeah. And I'll be, I'll be out real soon. But it's, that's one of the very important elements in a lot of these continuous heinous crimes, I find mm. that there's, a, as you said, a sense of entitlement. Oh, yeah. Just how dare you tell people that I did this to you, scumbag. Mm. And you really got that absolute arrogance for them that these are dirty. What was he coming? One of the phrases I said it was dirty little queers, dirty little queers. It's like, mate, you're the one doing the raping. Oh, my God, that's hideous. So, there's so much more. Changed his name. There are, there are millions yeah. of things like um, when he was in Ivy Bridge, police were looking for him. And yet he was in Ivorybridge and there was intelligence reports saying where he was and nobody went to arrest him. When he went out to Thailand, he was in Thailand. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And there was intelligence reports going back and forth about what he was doing and how he was funding himself and what he was involved in. And again, this has all come out later on. 
when he came back into the country, he came back under a false passport and he had false, there was a, a, some sort of gym card and some other bits and pieces and he was booked into a hotel back in Plymouth. This was when he was arrested. Now, a lot of that was arranged for him by people. And it's a case of, well, who arranged it? It's known, it is known who arranged all these things or who is believed to have arranged it. There is a lot of questions over, you know, who helped him? Yeah. Some things were facilitated. Yeah. And the, a lot of the questions of the boys and the detective, the men and the detective, detectives is, should not the people who were involved in facilitating GOAT be looked at? Should they not? have some kind of responsibility because by this point it was known who he was and what he did um, and this was an area i kept trying to look into and as i said i'm, I'm not able to anymore a legal issue should we say okay oh i see mm. oh but i have one of those i was given one of those lovely letters that's several pages oh. long my goodness okay i so want to know more I told you that we, um, I think that we usually get a body disposal tip, but I wonder if we can sort of leave. I could, like... do, I could do that if you wanted. Before I knew it, I thought it was of about five, just in a few <laughs> seconds. I, yeah, I They're it very five. telling for people oh, in the biz. <laughs> I, I do have, a, I, I am the, I make these jokes. It's not really a joke. I am the only person. And this kind of sounds really bad. I'm probably the only person in the city who sits there the whole time wishing we had a serial killer. Twisted, <laughs> isn't it? Now, no, I'm, I don't I'm know. A, you've you found your um your niche here. <laughs> I'm, I'm a dad You're of, good company. I'm a, I'm a dad of three kids, and I constantly think, oh yeah, serial killer would be great. Worse than it was, I I mean, this, it can get quite embarrassing. I remember having a haircut a few months ago. Um, and it, it is dark, unfortunately. And like I said, I've worked at social services, so I don't, I, I get dark humour. I've been around cops off and on for 25 years and criminals. I really get dark humour. And I was having my hair cut and they were, and she's like, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, I'm quite good water. Oh, that's nice. Well, yes, it is nice. I enjoy it. Yeah, what do you think? Well, I'm probably, I'm probably the only person in the city who really sort of, you know, dreams of having a serial killer. And then a few, within about a week, we had Kiam. And so when I next went to get my hair cut, she's there going, but you feel bad, don't you? And I was like, I was the first reporter on the scene. Yeah, I do. Were but you? I was. You said was the best till last, but go on with the body disposal. Sorry, we've got too much. <laughs> okay, well, the, the obvious ones are like the film ones. So the, the Guy Ritchie process of you get a bunch of pigs. And this is also from the series Hannibal as well, which is a it's a winner story. for us actually. I have to say. You, or you you have um, access to a large number of pigs, uh, and pigs will eat through anything. So it's instantly you know the, the skin, the bones, the sinew, even the you know everything. So and because it, it gets Apparently defecated, not around. teeth, Did not you teeth, know? but then you know yeah because they it, can be the dealt amount, with. Yes, you deal with that a different way. You <laughs> shovel it up. Small price the to pay is you just um you tie them up you uh you know, smear them in peanut butter or whatever you want to you, <laughs> you 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 put a rope around them and a big heavy weight you take them out to sea in a boat and you toss them overboard and eventually they'll be eaten by the fishes um, and all that will be left will be the bone and they'll scatter and who goes dna testing in the water um dna obviously uh, you don't want to identify them dna is easily wiped from by fire or bleach so you you do it that route you, you bleach them to bits Obviously, the old root of um, acid in the bath is a classic. Um, my favourite one. Bad style. 
breaking, very much breaking bad style, but obviously it goes back to Christie, I think, in London. Oh yes. Um, yeah, the old classic with all the bodies. My favorite is the is the clever one, is which is if you want to dispose of a body, how do you the best way to hide something is hide it in plain sight, yes? Yes. Bury them in a graveyard. Oh, thank you. Who goes looking? I'm gonna have to make a jingle for this one. Who goes who goes looking for a dead body in a graveyard? You'll find tons. You may not necessarily find all the ones you thought you were gonna find. That's that's oh, how you do blown it. You've you blown it. You dig it up, you put a dead body in, you cover it over. Bob's your uncle. Bob's your uncle. <laughs> I probably give me another 10 minutes. I could probably think of a few more. That's you know, the worst I asked one. this to a true crime podcaster. Actually, I can say she's Lady She's Lady Justice is her name. She's a lovely girl. She went off on the most detailed, like, mm. names of chemicals and how to deal with skin separately and so on that showed some quite clear, detailed thought and knowledge. Is it wrong to admit that I sometimes have these stories in my head where I think, how would I do commit the perfect crime? Don't you have to, in order to do your job very well? I do but I do sometimes think how would I commit the perfect crime knowing all the court cases that you cover and how the, the and I suppose if you're you know, if you're writing a, a a crime novel book you have to think about how would you commit a crime where you do not leave any traces is there a perfect crime you know and I, I think that's you know it's interesting as technology moves on as there are advances on CCTV DNA etc um, doorbell cameras now even mm. how would you get away with the perfect crime and this comes no, back no. to what i said to ben amdo on our last episode is that i think that there's some kind of criminal element in most journalists probably yeah there's oh vanessa george story awful one the one of the lead detectives on that case um was was a fantastic guy costa nasaris um really really sharp really clever and he'd been he'd gone on a um, he'd gone on a specialist course, very specialist course about how you interview paedophiles, how you dig into their psychology and work out which bits, how far they will take you down into admission and how much they will hold underneath. And there was like a line that, you know, no, they don't ever go, I'll tell you everything. There's always that bit where you go, right, I will offer you all of this so that you stop digging and keep going further down. And he said it's, you know, the, the cleverness. And he goes, they are by nature groomers. They'll groom. So they'll be very, very helpful. I'll tell you this and I'll tell you that. Um, so that you stop. So that you know, a naive copper would eventually stop the rest of the questions. And um, and he was really, really, I said, really impressive. With that. And I would phone him up about cases about this and that. And the nature of the journalist is that you want people to tell you things. You have to win them over. You have to encourage them to tell you stuff. Sometimes stuff that they, that, maybe they shouldn't maybe they don't want to or maybe they just feel they can't but the idea is you just gather as much as you can and there's one time I was phoning up and like oh you and I just started chatting about this chatting about that and of course it's all it's all part of the conversation of of getting to the point and he just suddenly went cold and went Carl stop grooming me and I just thought for him to say that to me I was like oh oh my God, that's what I'm doing. That is what I'm doing. That's what I do. That's what journalists do. We do do that. Mm. We groom people. Mm. Now, anyone else had said it, I probably wouldn't have been so. <gasps> mm. 
fact that he's him who investigated Vanessa George, you know, and this, he's a specialist in this field. It was like, oh, mate, that hurts. That's like, very yeah, interesting, what? though, because the pair of you are probably, you know, you're, you're high up your game, so to speak. Yeah, it's kind of like, OK, I'm going to have to be doubly clever now. And that's what I'm doing <laughs> I know what you're really thinking. <laughs> you're double, you're, you're quadruple thinking. You're, it's like chess. Yes. Trying to get to tell you stuff. You're having to get four steps ahead. How do I win this person over? And a lot of that is so much of my job is encouraging people to tell me stuff. And how, how far along the road of being um, manipulative have yeah. I gone? And, and within the within the lines. And yes. how much of that am I okay with it morally? All right. Know, am I doing this? You know, how do I justify? Am I justifying it for a good reason? There is stuff I have been told which I've never reported on. Some well, stuff. A case in would, point here, you know, you've had limits, what many yeah. limits. But there are times where it's like I am told stuff and I'm like, oh my God, that's public, that was publicly known. And there's stuff that I'm told where the person is like, I'm telling you this, Carl, but mm. that's it. Mm. And I just think to myself, you know, there are there are these packages in my head of things mm. I'm told that I think I can never tell anyone that. It's but, always when the tape stopped as well. Yeah, that's well. I mean, shorthand is like not at all down. I never have a tape, but you do kind of think, okay, I've got to keep that forever. Yeah. And there's other times where I think, no, that absolutely has to be known. It's really important the rest of the public know about that. The rest of the institutions know about that. Yeah. And my job then is to convince them, no. Yeah. What you just told me, we have to put on the record, even if it's just a source. But I have to find a way of putting that out. How about if I do it at the end of the court case? How about if I do it in five years' time? You know, and that comes down to what, what each individual journalist thinks is needs to be out there. Some journalists will think, first day, it's got to be out there now. Don't mm. care. And mm. they'll burn their contact. Mm. Um, and others will be like, no, you keep hold of that stuff. And I, and mm. I, I read a lot of other journalist books. I read um, the guy who did uh, Flat Earth Society and, and Hack, Nick, um, I can't remember his last name now. But... I read other journalists' work. No, I've read when mm. I was younger. I was reading Pilger. You you read how they deal with that conscience part of what they mm. do, and it's and you think, who do I want? Who mm. do I want to follow? Who who's? I mean, you know, I read Piers Morgan. I'd be like sick all the time. But there are journalists out there who read Piers Morgan and probably think, oh, brilliant. That's the kind of journalist I want to be. I've met other journalists who look at people like him and some of the the sort of the tabloidy approach. And that's their dream ticket. Mm, but there are some elements in it which aren't all that bad. You know, hear the ice cream fan. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. Fernando's got one round his neck of the woods. It always turns up when I'm recording. Do you do know, uh, you may not know this, some of the ice cream band sounds aren't ice creams. They're pasties. Plymouth Coroner's Court, because I cover Coroner's Court a lot. And again, I think Coroner's Court kind of fool falls into the same area as crime courts and crime. So I, go, I used to go to the coroner's court a lot until they've shut down recently. So you're not allowed to go there. You have to do it online. But they have a pasty van in that area because it's an industrial estate. Don't tell me. World most embarrassing thing. You are sitting there in the middle of a coroner's <laughs> court and there is the jury sitting there and there is the coroner and there are the family and the barristers and people are crying and it's painful and it's emotional and you're there diligently writing everything and then suddenly you hear ding 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 ding, ding, ding. 
and it is really loud and it's really inappropriate. It's almost like having a, you might as well have a car pull up in the car park and go, no, 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 And you just think, oh my God, that is awful. Do you have a website or would it be your Facebook that people can go to if they want to reference any of this? Some of it's on my Facebook page, I suppose, um, or, our, or our main website, the, the Plymouth Herald website. Or and your Carl with a C. Carl with a C, yes, not the uh, Germanic version. It's Carl with And C. E-V-E. As in Christmas. <laughs> How I, I, I have, Mitzi as in pizza. I have the shortest <laughs> name that we've ever had at our newspaper. Okay, Carl Eve, seven letters, C-A-R-L-E-V-E. I cannot count the amount of times when we used to have print where I'd see my name wrong. Carl with a K, Eve, E-A-V-E, E-A-V-E-S. And I used to sort of, I used to go to the, over to the subs and go, it's seven letters. We what do subs? words. You've got people called Stephanie Columbian and you get theirs dead right. <laughs> but mine is seven letters. It's the shortest name. Basically, you cannot abbreviate my name any more than it already is. And you've still got it wrong. Do you have a nickname? Um, yeah, probably a lot of rude ones. I had people who called me Carlos, Carlos Fandango, Super Wide Wheels from the Hamlet advert. <laughs> Remember that? Carlos Fandango, Super Wide Wheels. So I had some people who gave, gave me the whole Carlos Fandango, Super Wide Wheels. My editor would call me Carlos. I think he, he liked it because I used to call him Gov because I came from Essex. Everyone was Gov. All right, Gov. Gov, I got this. He's like, I like Gov. That's good. But they don't get it down here. It's all made and meat. Carlos in the main. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really is. Some people say Carlos. It's just like, no thank worries. you. Oh, it. it's, it's really um, you you have me gripped for the whole time, and uh, yeah, I'd love to outline Kiam actually, and the just yeah, the inquest process. Yeah, I didn't ask you all the questions I wanted to ask you. What's the other one we're going to talk about? We're going to talk about go. Yeah, I can talk about this. Range Rover murders. Oh my God! Yeah, classic. Daniel going Jones. along to the oh trivia. yes and jason Vella. yeah that was an interesting okay movie. all right all right bye carl <laughs> thank you, you very much my pleasure what a listen what a great talker carl is a great talker no really really interesting thanks carl for coming on um yeah and we really enjoyed having you on it was yeah really i'm good. sorry i'm gonna darken your doorstep again you know that <laughs> well yeah thank you carl we um i really enjoyed talking to you shame ben couldn't make it <laughs> now tell me about nadine well uh nadine seems to be a little bit nadine do you say nadine i think i think i'd, I'd probably say it whichever way she doesn't just to annoy her <laughs> what like uh well we've done that actually with jizz lane Jizzy Jizz. Oh my God. Yeah. Poor Jizzy Jizz. She oh, lost her appeal. She did. She's not very appealing. But that's a story for another podcast. Mm. Right. Nadine Doris. Well, the reason we're talking about her is because I saw something on my Twitter feed about her saying that anyone who thinks people need to go to food banks is a lefty, what does she call them? Loony left moaning about the rising demand for food banks. And I just kind of thought this woman really is quite crazy. And um, Carl Eve's been tweeting about her seeming to be under the impression that Channel 4 is state-owned. Well, it, 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 she's, in, she's under the impression, I think, that Channel 4 gets money from 
uh, the government in some way, which it doesn't. It's entirely self-funding through advertising, but it's not owned by a private company like, for example, Sky or by a private individual like Sky. It's it's kind of um, it, it's owned by the government or by the British people um, and the government is custodians of it. And she seems to think it's she seems. I mean, what I don't understand with this whole argument here is she is we've got Netflix, we've got streaming services, there is ITV, there is Channel 5, there is Sky TV, there is Discovery, there is Disney Channel. There are a host of broadcasters that you can receive in the UK that are privately owned and you can pick and choose between them. And there's there's one that doesn't take any kind of subsidy called Channel 4. And it does pretty good stuff. I mean, in Very in the current stuff, BAFTA season, in the current BAFTA season, uh, Channel 4's "It's a Sin" drama is is dominating the the drama awards. So they're clearly doing something right. It doesn't cost the British taxpayer any money at all. Its mantra is to put all its profits back into program making because it doesn't have to pay any dividends to shareholders or anything like that. It can it puts all its profits back into program making. Its mandate is to spread production out of London. So its headquarters, I think, is in Leeds. It has production in Glasgow and other cities around the UK. And as far as I can see, you've got so many privately owned ones. Why not just keep one that's publicly owned? Why not keep one? Just one, that's all. But no, there's clearly a dogmatic reason that she has decided that's it. It's got to go. And, and what, what annoys me here is, I mean, we live in a democracy. I don't necessarily agree with everything that's broadcast. I don't necessarily agree with everything that's printed. I don't necessarily agree with everybody who speaks in the House of Commons. And that might be, I might disagree with Conservatives. I might disagree with Labour uh, MPs or Lib Dems. But I understand they have a right to speak and that different views should be listened to in a democracy. But I really get the sense with this government that they they aren't Democrats. They don't want there to be any dis dissenting voices. They think the BBC is against them, so they want to try and get rid of it. They think Channel 4 is against them, so they want to try and get rid of it. And yet, you know, I saw people on Twitter saying, get rid of, you know, lefty liberal Channel 4. It's just a massive lefty blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. We've had 12 years of... The Conservatives either fully in power or jointly in power. So even if Channel 4 was the worst bastion of left-wing uh, thought and propaganda, it's not doing much to convince the electorate, so it's hardly worth even bothering about from that point of view. I think what it's doing is, is I mean, just going back to what we were talking about with um, Carl, it is a little bit harder for other media outlets versus the BBC. The BBC can pretty much choose its own agenda, whereas, you know, if you're commercial or you have other... Um, you have to get your funding in different ways, then it holds you accountable in different ways as well. And I think that makes for a competitive environment. Yeah, for sure. I mean... I think that uh, this is the thing. I mean, it's a bit like when I was at ITN and when I was at Channel 5, well, ITV and then Channel 5, the BBC was there and Channel 4 was there. And they, they provide a datum point because they're publicly funded. They can provide a datum point of neutrality and quality that the independent uh, broadcasters, the privately owned broadcasters, then have to match. Otherwise, what's the point? Mm. And I, I, I don't understand, even if, even if you're 
very right wing in your view is all very very left wing come to that because lots of left wing people think that the bbc is the boris broadcasting corporation they they don't think it's um left wing enough for them but surely you can see that if if you have views on one side of the political divide or the other and a central neutral broadcaster is going to sound to your ear like it's tilted the other way because it's not right where you are, which is on one side or the other of the political divide. Okay, that's interesting you say that because two seconds after I read something about it being full of lefty loonies, then the next second it's like, oh, right wing, you know, Boris puppets. And you're like, okay, make your mind up. Quite, exactly, exactly. That's right. And, you know, you spend, you know, five minutes on Twitter and you'll find as many people slagging off Channel 4 or the BBC as there are supporting them. And that, but that's normal. That's natural. Oh, there are I pe- don't know. I think people have grown to be more critical of the BBC than anything else. I don't see many people no, tearing no, no. down Channel Four. No, that's only because you're. That's come, people are making a noise about it. So you're thinking everybody feels like that. If you actually stop somebody and said, "What do you think of the BBC?" Some would be critical. Some would say, "Oh, I really like it. I think this is good or that's good." If you're sitting, looking at Twitter. You've got people who are agitated, who are wanting to have their say, and they are much more likely to be the ones who have got an extreme or um, critical view. Well, that said... That said... You love your getting your soapbox out about the BBC. I was going to say BBC because we were going to talk about Nadine's Nads Knockers. Because <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I love the fact that that whole Twitter feed... Like, someone took a screenshot because she deleted the tweet about the food banks... And, and then someone else wrote underneath, which is what I sent you, and you're totally confused. So not? Christopher Wrangle, a.k.a. <laughs> something or other, even to the untrained eye, Nads has big knockers. And someone wrote underneath that, I wish her brains were that big. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. She's um, she's annoying, isn't she? do you not find her annoying every time she says something or she writes some kind of brutal tweet which you think fucking rein it in woman she does provide an awful lot of ammunition to her critics whether it's her sort of (laughs) uh, whether it's her simpering looking up at boris johnson adoringly or in select committees clearly not understanding how channel four is funded and she's supposed to be the effing culture secretary um (laughs) When she's photographed in her, or she's on like, you know, doing interviews on Zoom or whatever in her room, uh, her house, and she's got like two box books on the, a massive bookcase behind her with two books on it, and they're both by her. And you just find yourself thinking, oh dear. Shame it's not you a know. dildo. <laughs> that could fit in, because I was just thinking how we were wanting for naughty news items at the moment. It's all been quite serious with our, you know, getting our teeth into all this crime with Carl Eve. But at the same time, we love a bit of uh, naughty news action. <laughs> and um, certainly do. dildos on display, DOD. We certainly do. Right. Well, thanks very much then. Yay. Is that it for this week? Oh, sorry, I think for this so. Bye gonna... week. This... <laughs> being a bi guy and a bi gal as we are um i think so unless there's anything you'd like to add no nothing i'd like to add no nothing. not even thanking all the lovely listeners all oh, right thank you lovely listeners was that sincere enough um yeah really sincere i'd like to say thank you we will be back with uh, with some saucy stories we will we will absolutely yeah you've got to find some ben this is your it's oh, your go on. yeah mm. Come on, dildos on the shelves and uh, oops moments. 
<laughs> what have you got oh, for dinner tonight? I'm doing my smoked salmon um, pasta with vodka. Oh, yum. Bye-bye. Okay. See you next bye week. Bye. Bye.